Replay, paying off $450,000 of debt and catapulting financial success with Marco Brown, episode 303. Are you ready to make your law firm a profit-generating machine that will free up your time and skyrocket your impact? With more than two decades of business growth experience and having proven that you can be successful while prioritizing your family, and your impact, introducing the Profit with Law podcast. I am your host, the creator of the firm differentiator 10x effect, Moshe Amsel. Well, hello and welcome to another great guest interview here on the Profit with Law podcast. I'm your host, Moshe Amsel, and we're here every Tuesday and Thursday. Tuesdays, we, I do a solo episode, and then Thursdays, we do a great guest interview. My guest today is Marco Brown. Uh, Marco is a fellow lawyer uh, to all of our listeners, and uh, I, I saw him actually in the, the Maximum Lawyer Facebook group, which is a very active group with attorneys in it. Uh, really like the conversations that go on in there. And there was a conversation that was talking about money. And uh, Marco had mentioned about getting out of debt. And from that, and, and his number of getting, you know, getting out of debt to the tune of $450,000, which really caught my attention. And I said, you know what, this is a story I want to highlight on the podcast. And I reached out to him. Uh, and he was kind enough to be willing to give of his time and come on the on the show to share his story so that you can learn from it. Uh, you might be in a similar situation uh, that he was in at some point. And if somebody, if you see it's proof that somebody else did it, that's proof positive for you that you can do it too. So really excited to have Marco here. Let me give you the, the official bio. Uh, Marco owns Brown Law, divorce law firm in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, Marco loves to cook and read. He travels often, usually to Italy, his happy place. Um, I've never been. Um, I hope to be there one day. Uh, he's a husband and father. His oldest boy is adopted and the youngest is an IVF baby. He and his wife, uh, De uh, Demery, I hope I didn't uh, botch that one up, have a third on the way, another IVF baby. Marco is a huge advocate for attorneys being debt-free and the freedom it provides them and their firms. Marco, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And again, I, um, I appreciate you giving of your time for our audience. Um, the easiest way for us to dive into this is to get your backstory. Like, how did you get into law? Um, and, you know, and, and how did you end up starting your law firm? So I, uh, it's a long story for me. When I was a little kid, my my father's mother, my grandmother on my father's side was a professor and a PhD when women didn't do that sort of stuff. She was an educator, but really a psychologist, the smartest woman I've ever met in my entire life still to this day, just amazingly intelligent. And uh, so I grew up in that kind of environment where you went to school, you got, uh, you got professional degrees. And I knew since I was about eight years old that it would get something like that. It'd be a PhD or I'd, go, I'd be a lawyer or something. And then you know, you do what you do as a kid, which is explore a whole bunch of different things. And at the end of college, I thought I'd be a clinical psychologist, but then I started looking at things more and I just realized that God made me to be an attorney. So mm -hmm. I thought, okay, well, I got to go to law school. And I went to, went to law school and clerked after law school, still my favorite job uh, of all. I, I love clerking for my judges. They were great. It was the third district in Iowa. 
And then I became an insurance defense attorney, which was, so I went from the best job I ever had in my entire life to the worst job I ever had in my entire life. And I only made it about 18 months at that firm. And it was a good firm. That was the thing. Everybody told me how good a firm it was. It was a 50, 60 guy shop. So it was, you know, fairly big. And I just hated every second of it. So I decided I was going to get out. I didn't have any, any fallback plan. I didn't have anything. I just knew I needed to not be there anymore. So my, my wife came to me at that point. This is 2010. I said, hey, I want to go back to the University of Utah. We graduated from Brigham Young University here in Utah. Uh, I want to go back to the U and get a doctorate. She sings opera. So I thought, oh, okay, you know, let's do that. I hate my job. I just quit. So let's do it. So came up here. This is 2010. This is not a good year to be an attorney, right? right? Yep. I mean, firms in New York, Chicago, LA are just shutting down and no one's hiring. So I thought to myself, well, if I'm ever going to own a law firm, it's going to be now. So we did just open it up, had no clients, no network, no nothing, just had to figure it out. And thankfully, you know, been, been, really blessed and, and work really, really hard to make it, make it function. And we've been successful in, in doing that thing. And, you know, in the beginning I did everything. I made a ton of mistakes in the beginning, which is stuff I talk about with lawyers all the time because I made all those mistakes, made a ton of mistakes, then finally found <clears throat> what uh, kind of what my calling was, you know, what I was really good at, which was divorce law and been doing that for, for years now. And it's exclusively what we do. That's awesome. And um, you're, you've been operating your law firm, if my math is correct, for about 10 years now. Um, do you recall how many years it took until you were bringing home an income that you were like, okay, this is the kind of income that I thought was possible with owning my firm? So I, I got asked this question the other day, when in this form, when did I replace the money that the income that I lost when I left the law firm, and I believe it was between year three and four. So I made about, I mean, $65,000 at the law firm, the insurance defense law firm. And then I think I made $24,000 the first year I was out on my own. And then it kind of went up. Most. <laughs> most people lose you know, money their first year. No, I did. Well, I lost money in the sense that I loaned myself a whole bunch of money to start. Right. Um, and then I think I had $24,000 in gross receipts that first year. It was just got nuts. it. So, got uh, it. so but it was not between profit, not take home pay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think it was between year three and four that I replaced the 65,000. Right. But you know what people don't, tend to think about, they, they just see the fear side of it, right? I'm losing this income. They don't see the upside of it. I mean, I make, or I make multiples, multiples more than I ever did at that law firm or I ever would have at that law firm. I think the highest paid attorney at that law firm was like $135,000, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, all right money, I guess, but not good. So, you know, people, people freak out that, that they're giving up a, a salary, but when you go on your own and you create something, your upside is almost unlimited compared to being an employee. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And the reason that I asked the question is because I want to highlight for our listeners, you know, we're in a society that we want everything now, 
Uh, we place an order on Amazon and if it's, if it's going to take two days, we're upset because it's not the one day delivery. Uh, once they start delivering with drones and it comes within a few hours, then we're going to be really upset if it takes one day. Uh, we want to watch something. We go to the DVR and watch it. We go to on demand and watch it. There's, we're not waiting for a show to come on at a specific time and sitting through and waiting through the commercials. Right. Um, so this is the society that we live in. And when somebody starts their law firm, they're in the same mode, the same mindset is I want results right now. And we, that impatience of waiting, of wanting results right away creates worse results. Right. So we, we make poor decisions because we're trying to be aggressive to get the results faster. So we make mistakes faster. We don't take the time to learn from those mistakes and we make them again. Um, so I, I, I asked you that question because I wanted to highlight to our listeners that there's no there isn't a magic pill and there's lessons you need to learn along the way. Now, maybe it doesn't need to take you four years to get to sixty five thousand dollars of income, but there is a progression from I'm, I'm hanging up a shingle, I'm starting to um, I'm now earning a decent enough living that I feel like, you know, this is this is something that that, that I've, I'm finally achieving my goals. It could take time for that. And you got to allow that to happen. You got to give it time to grow. The best analogy is is looking at a plant, a tree, a child, you know, any any human life, any any living thing that's growing. Uh, it, you know, if, if it jumped straight from, you know, if a kid jumped straight from birth to, to adolescence, they would miss everything in between. They wouldn't know how to walk. They wouldn't know how to talk. They wouldn't know how to eat. You know, so that progression has to happen so that we can learn the basic functions, the basic, you know, important things. Now, you said that you learned a lot of lessons along the way. And before we even start talking about the financial piece or the financial story, um, if you had to uh, look back at, at your younger self 10 years ago, you're starting your law firm, what's one piece of advice, the, the biggest you know, lesson that you can possibly give yourself as a brand new law firm owner starting out, what is that nugget that you're like, okay, 10 years later, this is everything I've learned. And this is the one thing that if I was able to impart on myself, I would say, do this. Hey, there, there are really two. So I'll answer with two. You but can the first have one, I'll allow okay. it. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is definitely, I talk about this all the time, is getting paid. Now, there, there's an analogy I like to use for getting paid. It's get paid like a casino boss. So casino bosses in Vegas. I'm you know fairly close to, to Vegas. I don't gamble, but I, I know the, the terrain a little bit. So you go to Vegas and a casino boss will literally do anything for you, even if it's illegal, if you pay him right? But the moment you stop paying him, he doesn't do anything for you. You can't even get back in, in your room, okay? So get paid like a casino boss. You, you are there and you have a contract with your client. And that contract is, I'm going to do excellent, excellent work for you. I'm going to do the best legal work I possibly can. And you're going to pay me 100% for the time I spend on your case. That is really what a retainer boils down to, right? That is the contract between us and our clients. So do your job, be excellent at it because if you if you don't, you need to go to lawyer prison because you're bad at your job. But you get paid 100% for the work you do. I did not do that at all. I, I didn't send out invoices for three and four months at a time. Uh, I, I wrote off hours, you know, billable hours that I had worked. I didn't communicate with my clients when they didn't pay me. I kept working on cases when they weren't paying me because I was scared. I was just scared 
that they would stop being my client. And for some reason, having a client that wasn't paying me or was only paying me 50% was preferable to not having a client, right? That, that is the wrong mindset. That's, that's what I call chasing money. So don't chase money. Get paid like a casino boss from day one. Your trajectory, your revenues and your trajectory as a law firm will be exponentially higher if you do that one thing compared to just kind of meandering around and getting paid 50 cents, 70 cents on the dollar. So that's number one. And then number two is I wish I had specialized in divorce from day one. I wish I had just chosen the thing to go with and then did it. Now, I didn't do it because I literally didn't know what I wanted to do. But most people who start their law firm don't do it like I did. Uh, they come from a place where they're at least relatively good at what they do and they decide to branch out on their own. So they already have an idea. And if that's, if that's where you are, then pick one thing and go with it. You will, you will get paid more money. You will spend less time thinking about your cases because you're not trying to reinvent the wheel all the time and figure out every new, new thing that comes up. Uh, so that would be my number two. Awesome. I love both of those. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the last one first. Uh, I, I harp on this here on the podcast. As a matter of fact, we just replayed one of my early episodes and, and it's episode 129. Uh, why choosing a niche will skyrocket your firm. It's really, really important. If you want to, folks, if you want to go listen to that, it's profitwithlaw.com forward slash 129. Being able to focus all your efforts, all your marketing efforts on one target market, all of your activities within the firm on one type of matter, uh, one, one set of issues that you're going to have to deal with allows you to create systems and processes. It allows you to get unified in the way that you, you bill, the way you communicate. Um, it, it's just all around uh, massively different than trying to be everything to everybody. And Marco, believe it or not, no matter how many, how much people walk away from their job being an expert in a certain area, they still, when they start their law firm, say yes to everything. There's probably 90% of people who start their law firms end up having three or four practice areas within the first year that they're serving and they put on their website because that's what a family or a friend needed. And they wanted to make sure that they were bringing in money. So they said yes to it. Um, but what people don't realize is that saying yes to something that you now have to go figure out and you're not going to be comfortable billing for the work that you're doing because you're learning on someone else's dime and you don't feel like you're, you're you know, your chart, you feel like somebody else who knew what they were doing probably would be charging less hours. Therefore, you cut your what you're billing. Um, it's a very inefficient way of working and it's preventing you from taking on the thing that you do know how to do, the thing that you are an expert at or the thing that you're going to focus on. So um, I love number two. It's, it's something we, we focus on here on the podcast a lot. Number one was your conversation about, about money and being comfortable to bill. And the one thing I want to add to what you already shared, uh, because there's a lot that we could dive into there. And I, I, I don't want to necessarily focus on that area for right now. But the one thing I want to point out is if you think about it, what kind of message are you sending your client when you don't chase after them for the money they owe you? What, you know, are you, are you valuing yourself or devaluing yourself when you do that? You know, the client is not, is not sitting there thinking, wow, this attorney is rolling in dough and doesn't need, you know, doesn't need my money. And that's why I'm not getting a, a bill. They're either thinking they don't have their act together 
they're, you know, they're drowning, you know, in work and they don't have time to bill or um, they lost track of everything. And now when I get a bill, I can question every single line item on it because they don't have any idea what they did. So all of those things set you up to be to, to, to lose professionalism in the process and not, not be looked at in a good light by your client. Um, so besides for hurting yourself, you're also hurting your reputation in the process, which we really don't think about that. Um, and I think that's important to, to, to recognize. Uh, one thing I have noticed is that even people who are comfortable billing the right number of hours, they're comfortable billing the rate, um, most attorneys lose that comfortability when it comes to saying, hey, you're at 50% of your retainer, you need to replenish it. And they're afraid to request the retainer replenishment because it's not money earned yet. It's not, you know, so they'll end up, they'll end up using up the entire retainer and then they'll go over and now the client owes money and it defeats the whole purpose of having a retainer. Um, so that's the other thing is, is, you know, it's not just, okay, I got a bill, I got to track my time, I got to bill my time properly. Um, it's also, you had a contract that somebody agreed to maintain that retainer, whatever that threshold was, if it was 50%, they have to replenish it. You need to start asking for that replenishment the moment they hit that, that 50%. If you look at any other business, there's no, there's no business that won't ask you to pay a bill or to, or to pay into, um, you know, uh, funds that need to be there when you, when you go past it. So why are we afraid to do that? You know, Netflix is not afraid of charging me every ten dollars every month. Sure, it's only ten bucks, but that's their fee. They're not gonna they're not gonna wait and you know until three months later and say, oh, okay, we owe, you, owe, you owe us for three months now. I'm actually going through this with my daycare right now. Um, they had a problem with their system, so they didn't charge my card for three months, and I didn't realize. And then all of a sudden, they sent an email and they said, "Hey, by the way, um, we had a problem with our system, and we want to know if it's okay to run this charge for you know three and a half thousand dollars." And sure, it's fine. But had you communicated with me and said, "Hey, we're having a problem with our system," you know, you, uh, you your charge didn't go through. I would at least have been prepared, knowing that, hey, I didn't. I had a thousand plus dollar expense this month that I didn't pay, and I need to pay it next month or whenever it comes. Or I could have written them a check and paid them. You know, so they they didn't communicate. They're out the money, and now I don't. I'm not. I don't feel good as a client being hit with that with that extra fee. So it, it's um, all around. It's just bad. It's bad business. And, and I love that. That's, you know, uh, that's your, your, your key lesson. Now let's start talking about your, your, your debt story. We, we know there's, you know, you got $450,000 out of debt. What was, what was that debt from? Was it, was it primarily student loans? Was it uh, just, you know, living beyond your means? What, what made up that, that, uh, that dollar amount? So it was the student loans, and then I had about a hundred and I think we had about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in student loans. So it was my JD, my wife's master's degree, and then my wife's uh, uh, doctorate. Mm -hmm. So it was about one hundred and sixty, one hundred and seventy thousand dollars in that, and then our house. We've we've never been you know huge debt people. Well, we had a car too. My my bad, we had a car. So. I had never been a credit card person, hadn't done that sort of thing, but had racked up an amazing amount of debt in, in those other things. And this was about, that number is from about 2015. And that year for me was huge because I had, I'd had some success in, in the law practice. You know, I, I started making some money. I won divorce attorney of the year here in Utah. 
uh, voted on by my peers in the bar. So that was a big, big thing. I, I felt like I kind of arrived. And I remember it was about two days after I won that award. Uh, and I don't do awards. Like I don't really put much stock in them. But that one I thought was very, right. very cool. But then two days later, I realized I had all of the same problems I had before I won the award. And it was really, really disillusioning at that point because uh, I had all the stress. I had all of the money problems. I had all of the, I let myself get fat as well. I was, I was large when I was a kid and then I lost a whole bunch of weight, but I let myself get in poor health. Uh, you know, my, uh, my spiritual walk was not great. Like all these things were kind of breaking down. And I thought to myself, something has to drastically change here. So I really thought through it. And I thought, the first thing was, hey, why don't why don't I just get out of debt? Why don't we make that? Because debt makes everything worse. If you have a problem, it's worse because you have debt on top of that problem. And the other thing is, if you have a problem and you have money to solve that problem and you can write a check, you no longer have a problem. So I thought, all right, why don't why don't we do this? And my wife and I sat down and we decided, all right, we're going to get out of debt as as quickly as we possibly could. Yeah. So um, before we dive into what that what that looked like, um, I just yeah, I want to share from my own personal story. I totally resonate with where you were in that moment, um, mm -hmm. because I've been there a couple of times before in my life. And, and the one that I could think of the most and is when I got divorced. So I, I was married uh, really young. Um, I had my first kid when I was still 19. I have five kids now. The, the first three were from my first marriage. And then um, in 2006, uh, I got divorced. And when I got divorced, I, I started to reevaluate everything in my life. I reevaluated uh, my spirituality, my religion. I reevaluated the work that I was doing. That's when I decided to start going to school to become an accountant. It was, you know, I had been in IT and I continued in IT through schooling and, and even beyond. Uh, so I had a 20 year career in IT before I became an accountant and then uh, moved into advisory services and then finally serving law firms. Uh, but all of that, the, 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 new, the me you see today was a result of me questioning in 2006, why am I here? What's my purpose? What did, you know, um, what do I really want? And also dealing with my with my health. Uh, for me, it's an ongoing constant struggle. It's not like I solved the problem, um, but I definitely was um, going through the divorce. And in that time, had um, just let myself go. I, I wasn't focusing on that at all, and and had gotten to the heaviest. I'm five foot eight. I was 235 pounds at, at that point, um, and uh, you know, so a, a big event. And for you, it was an exciting event, right? But but a big event has the the ability to be the impetus for us to start to question everything about us and to really look inside. And when we look deep inside, sometimes we don't like what we see, and it's it's time for change. One of the things when I um, so I run a, a a ninety day program called the ninety day law firm turnaround. It's a group coaching program. Um, one of the things that I do is um, I send a book to my coaching students called living forward. And right at the beginning, I have them go through that book. It's by Michael Hyatt and Daniel Harkavy. And it's all about creating a life plan. And one of the exercises it has in the book is for you to write your own eulogy. What do you want people to say about you when you die? And if you start to go through that exercise, even now, if you just start thinking about it, you start to realize how powerful that can be, because it really makes you question like, 
what do I want to be known for? What do I want? What's my stake in the ground? What, what is the thing that I want to be remembered for? And chances are, if you haven't been thinking about that, you're probably not anywhere on track to do that. And, you know, that's, you know, so, so when, when you tell me that, Hey, I won an award. And then two days later, I realized, oh my gosh, I still have all my problems. And that really was a wake up call for me. It's those wake up calls that are the the most impactful parts of our lives. Uh, So I love that that happened for you as well. Um, Now, $450,000 $450,000 in debt, including the house, which is phenomenal. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not there. I, I carry a mortgage. Um, but I, you know, I, I know that, that that must feel amazing. So can you just describe what does that feel like to own your house without a mortgage, um, not owe anybody any money? Everything that you earn is basically yours to keep or do with as you please. Just describe that for us. It's great. So it came in two, uh, paying off the debt came in two forms, really. One was the student loans, because we pay the car off very, very early. So paying off the student loans and then paying off the house. So we, when we made the decision in 2015 to get out of debt, really the first thing was to get the consumer debt and the student loans paid off. So we did that in very short order. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Dave Ramsey guy, so decided that we were going to follow that. Uh, so we, you know, we were on rice and beans. We just did not go out. I think I, I think I did the math. We lived on, I believe, thirty four thousand dollars that year, or forty maybe forty thousand dollars, somewhere around there. And then this, the rest of it just went to paying off debt. So we got that done in about a year, um, just working in insane to to make that happen. And the day I paid off the student loans was that was a great day. I, I it was just so freeing to be done with that type of debt, right? And realizing that we would never have to go back. If we wanted to buy a new car, we could simply save up and buy a new car, right? We bought a a Toyota Sienna about a year and a half ago, and we just set aside money every once in a while, uh, well, systemically, systematically, but Mm -hmm. we set aside money and then we went and bought a car and we we don't pay any interest on it. And it was just a fantastic, fantastic feeling. The house, I'm going to interrupt you for one, for one second before we get to the house. Do you remember what your monthly payment was between the car, the student loans, all of that, what your monthly nut was that you were paying? On the student loans, what was it? 1200 a month, I think. Uh Uh, Maybe. uh, No, I think it was more than that because I worked the numbers after. No, it was more than that because I worked the numbers after we paid off the student loans and I figured out that we saved like $11,000 a year in interest or some, some insane thing. And that, those numbers might be off because I haven't looked at them in a while. But right. we saved a lot per year in interest alone from those payments. Right. But I, I want the point I want to make is it's not it's it's not even the interest, right? Interest is something. So it's it's, it's another expense, right? It's like buying clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're carrying debt, then interest is one of the expenses in your life. But it's the the when you look at it from a cash flow perspective, and the monthly amount that you had to come up with, which includes your principal and interest. So let's say it was 1200, you had a car payment too, right? So what was that? Another 300 bucks, 400 bucks on top of yeah, that? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was three or 400. Yeah. Yeah. So before you turn around, you're at 1600, $1,700 a month minimum that when you paid this stuff off, you now had that was coming in before you now have that same $1,700 that's coming in that you can use for something else which exactly your mortgage payment or whatever it is that you decide to do with it. Um, so it, it's not only freeing to get out of the debt, 
but it also um, allows you to have so much more cash to, to do something with um, once that's, once that's behind you. All right. I'll let you go back to the house now. Oh, no, that's right. So when you go through a period like that and you're just rushing through it, then you kind of want to release. So we had had, you know, we had done some things after that that we hadn't done before in a long time. Like we, I go to Italy all the time. So we had started going to Europe on vacations, doing these things. And we were kind of paying off the house, but we were being haphazard about it. And then we decided that we, we really wanted to finish this journey and just get rid of debt completely and pay off the house. And that was a little bit, that feeling was a little bit different. So we went through and did that. Um, and that was another you know period of sacrifice to, to make sure that that happened. But I remember the day we paid off that, that debt and that one actually scared me for some reason. I emotionally, I wasn't, I, I thought I would be much more happy about that one than I was. Uh, but it kind of threw me for a loop for a few days because I didn't know what to, at that point, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I'd done this thing and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, what the future holds, right? So then I had to come up with another plan after that. And that's what it was, is just, you have a plan and you accomplish it. And then you, then you have to go on and figure out something else. Uh, Scott Adams, the guy who writes Dilbert has this great quote and it's, it's that losers have goals, winners have systems, right? And I'd let the goal take over instead of having a system. So I had to sit down after that and say, okay, now what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to build wealth? Uh, what does that look like now? And then when I did that, when I got the, that kind of future vision of, of that, then my anxiety went away, right? Because I had, I had, that, uh, I had that plan. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's, it's important to highlight, like what is, what is the end result that you're trying to achieve? Is it getting out of debt or is it creating wealth for your family, creating a future possibility of, you know, maybe at some point not needing to work to earn money or leaving some sort of legacy for your family or uh, having, you know, some uh, philanthropic thing that you want to focus on. Um, and I know that in, in your bio, we talked about the fact that you guys are, you know, used IVF, you're using IVF um, and that's not cheap. So, you know, the ability to be able to invest in that and do that, um, not worrying about, hey, I don't, I don't have any, any monthly debt payments that I need to pay, except for, you know, I got real estate taxes and food on the table and, that, and that's it. So uh, it really puts you in an empowering position to be able to be comfortable with life decisions that otherwise would have been a stretch, a struggle and all kinds of extra stress on top of an already stressful situation. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I... I, I never realized how good it was to have done what we did, pay off the house, get out of that until COVID hit. Now uh, I have a lot of, I have a lot of friends um, and, and the legal realm has, has bounced back pretty well. We seem to be in a V shape recovery, but you know, legal has bounced back pretty well uh, in divorce. We actually have had an uptick in numbers since COVID because Turns out people who don't like each other spending lots and lots of time confined with each other doesn't work out well for them. But right. you know, confinement a, accelerated a lot of things. It accelerated right. advancement of technology and the way we do business and it accelerated mm -hmm. divorce. It, it's bad. It's, it's bad. And it's very unfortunate. But, you know, uh, unfortunately, I get to reap the benefits of that. So but I had a lot of attorney friends who were just scared out of their minds because they had a huge nut to pay. And then in March and April, like no one knew what this, what was going to happen. I, you know, we all thought this was going to be depression level stuff. Right. And 
I realized that I was able to come up with a, with a plan to deal with COVID much, much easier than a lot of my friends because we just had absolutely nothing on, on the house and no payments whatsoever. So I was able to not take a salary for a number of months to ensure that all my vendors got paid, all my employees got paid. And my wife and I were fine because you know we had cash on hand a little bit and we just paid everything through that. But it was incredibly freeing that the literally the worst economic disaster that's happened since essentially the 1930s hit and we were cool, right? Yep. We, we could just, we could just make it work and it was all right. Yep. And what's, what's crazy is, is that the stress, it, it makes people, it's like deer in headlight syndrome, right? It makes people become completely unproductive in every facet of their life. So it affects your ability to, to, to be a spouse. It affects your ability to parent. It, expects, it affects your ability to be a, an employee or an employer. It affects your ability to be a business owner. Like you, you literally can't do anything when you are worried every moment about how am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to pay my, oh my gosh, they're going to have to, they're going to come take my car. Like our minds go there if we're in that situation and we're in the unknown because fear is real and fear breeds more fear. And when you don't have those things to worry about, there's nothing to be fearful of, which you know puts you in a totally different and a winning situation when everybody else is in a losing situation. Yep. So um, this is quite the journey. And first of all, congratulations to you guys for, for doing it, for, for getting out of debt and, ha- and, and owning your house free and clear. Um, and, you know, and your, your firm is, is growing. What are you doing to build your wealth? Like where, where are you investing money right now to make your money work, uh, work and become more money? It's a good question. So obviously the equity in the house is a large component of it. Then there's, uh, there's the business as well. So the business is worth a certain amount of money. We do, you know, we do 401ks, we have stocks and bonds. So it's all pretty simple stuff right now. Uh, to be perfectly frank, we're sitting on a bunch of cash because I was going to buy an office building when we got back. We were in uh, we were in Sicily for spring break, and I was going to buy an office building when we got back. So I was sitting on this money, and then you know COVID hit and the world blew up. So I told I told the buyers I was backing out or the sellers I was backing out because I had to sit on it and see what commercial real estate was going to do for the next little while. So mm-hmm. we've just been we've been amassing that cash so we can go get. Uh, an office building, because I think that real estate and owning your own office building is probably the single best investment you can make as uh, as a business, because it it does the same kind of thing as buying your house does. You you never have to worry about any of the logistics of, of moving again. You never have to worry about the the money of, of rent or you know any of that uncertainty, and you get the tax write off. So that's my that's my one big real estate purchase that we're going to make fairly soon here. I'm going to start looking for other office space, but beyond that, you know, probably, probably put more money into the, into the market, maybe diversify some things. Um, but you know, after a little while, I, I, I want to make some other real estate investments. I have a, I have a list that I created. Uh, Steve Harvey uh, has this really wonderful series of, uh, the comedian has this wonderful series of videos in which he talks about a list that you should make. And it's essentially 300 things that you want from, from God, like anything you want at all. 
just sit down and write down 300 things, which is an amazingly difficult exercise, actually. Because once you get to 100, right. you're like, I'm kind of done. But right. it's the idea I'd be that, scratching my head after 10, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I got to 75 and it took me probably months after that to get to 300. So, uh, but, you know, I went through and did that. And one of the things on, on the list is to buy buy a house in Italy where, where I really like to go. So that's one of the things that we'll also spend our money on in the future as we kind of amass, you know, more and more wealth. But as you amass more and more wealth, you get to, you get to spend it where you want. We do philanthropic things, uh, but, you know, ultimately wealth, the way I see it, wealth is for my family first and we're going to spend money uh, we, uh, on things we enjoy. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you, you know, my, my backstory or my why, but um, I share it here on the podcast. Uh, I don't know if I do it frequently, but I share it here on the podcast. My, uh, my grandfather came from Nazi Germany. He was 11 years old, uh, came with his father. He'd lost his mother and, and twin siblings in the war. And um, they started a business, you know, they started from nothing, started a business and uh, ultimately uh, had some money from the business, got together with a couple of cousins and bought a apartment building on the west side of Manhattan. And um, they went in, in the later years of, of my grandfather's life, uh, they started converting those apartments into, into co-ops and selling one unit at a time. And what he did was, is he helped, uh, he has 36 uh, grandchildren and he gave every one of his 36 grandchildren money for the down payment of their first home. And he also, um, uh, contributed to the private school education. So I, I grew up uh, um, in the Jewish Orthodox community. Uh, everybody goes to private school. They all go to Jewish school. Um, so he he helped with not only his grandchildren, but his great-grandchildren with paying money towards their private school tuition. And being the being a new parent and a young parent, um, you know, building a life and being able to get that head start and, and you know, entering into, you know, a, ma a major step like buying a home and having help like that, that, you know, people save for years for that first, uh, that, you know, that down payment on their first home and being able to just be given it as a gift totally changed my life. I mean, it, it, at the moment, like now it's like, like, okay, if, you know, $40,000 is, you know, it, it comes, it goes, it's, you know, it's really not that big a deal, but when you're young and you're first starting out, it's huge. And um, it was, it made such an impact that I said, you know what, I want to help other people do the same. And now our mission is to empower all people with wealth creation so that this and future generations can lead a better life. And that's what I think, you know, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think that family first and, and, and we, we want to create a legacy for our family. That's going to not only help ourselves, but help our children, grandchildren, and who knows how many generations down that can effectuate if done right. Uh, and then beyond that, you know, the sky's the limit, right? You can, you can change the, the, you know, the clean water in the world or the, you know, the carbon footprint or, you know, reduce the racism and, and, you know, well, there's, there's so many different ways that you can, that you can do something in this world once you have money. Um, but I, I really, you know, I resonate very, very much with, with the, you know, let's, let me create this thing for my family first. Um, and I love that you're looking at real estate. Real estate is a great wealth building tool. It's, it's a, it's, it's a tax shelter for no better uh, description. There's a lot of things that you can do with real estate that, that produces cash that you're not paying tax on. Um, 
And the fact that you're looking at an office building so that you're your own tenant kind of thing in that, in that scenario um, makes, it makes a lot of sense. And now's the best time to buy commercial real estate. If you know, you're doing it, you know, somebody who's like, Oh, I'm not sure if this is a good investment, then maybe you shouldn't do it because we don't know if people are going to go back to offices. Right. But ultimately they're going to go back and you're going to, you know, you're going to go back to an office. So if you need office space, then, you know, that's half the problem solved. So um, now it's a, it's a, it's a buyer's market because who wants to buy commercial real estate right now? Um, and, you know, so you're in a, a great position since you are prepared for it, you have the cash put away, which then goes and highlights, you know, the journey you did until now. If you hadn't taken the steps you took and prepared yourself for this moment, then you wouldn't be able to. You'd be looking at, uh, oh, it's a good time to buy, and and now I'm gonna I'm gonna try to buy with without having cash or borrowing, leveraging myself even more to get myself into even more trouble if something doesn't go right um, to to take that next step. So it's a totally different way of approaching even um, an investment decision that might make sense for somebody today who is not in the same financial position as you. Uh, so I love, I, I love the way you've positioned yourselves and, and um, job well done. Job well done. Thanks. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. It, just the, the stress of debt. I talk about this a lot. Uh, it, it was just too much. I always felt like Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill in purgatory, right? You know, in, in Dante's purgatory, you, you, I would just roll it up and then I'd get kind of near the top of the hill and then the boulder would, would go back to the bottom and I'd walk back to the bottom and do that. That's what it felt like with debt. Uh, you know, my, when you do your net worth analysis, that's kind of what it looked like as well, but it was more the boulder rolling down the hill than, than going up the hill. But since paying off debt and really planning intentionally for the future and, and making these investments, you know, that boulder does not fall down anymore. That's the thing. Like you just reduce your risk essentially to zero when you do this. And that's what, I don't think a lot of people get that. And think, well, you know, I can, I can borrow it at a low rate and then invest it at higher rates. And I think, yeah, that's great. And, and maybe you can do that. Maybe you're smarter than I am. So go for it. But uh, my, my whole thing is I'm going to minimize my risk as much as humanly possible because there are black swans. Anybody who reads in the scene to lab, right? You're going to have black swans and COVID kind of was a black swan. Uh, but, you know, in, in keeping yourself safe from black swans, which are these things that nobody anticipates that change the world, you know, rather drastically in a short amount of time, the best way you can do that is by minimizing your risk and paying off your debt is the best risk minimization strategy that there is that and paying your taxes. Yeah. And wealth is not created by making 5% on something that you can, that, that you can borrow at 3%, yeah. right? It's, it's, yeah. it's just not, you know, the only people who make money on spreads like that are banks, right? That's their mm -hmm. business model. Um, but everyone else, you know, you, you when you invest, you want to be making all of it. And, and uh, because if you're not, if you're wrong, there's, you know, you're the, the error factor is real. It, you know, it's going to really cost you as opposed to somebody who's not borrowing the money for that. Um, I want to switch gears for for a moment and talk about the business side. So getting your financial house in order on the personal side, what did that do for you on the business side? Did it change the way you, that you behaved? Um, I know in the, the pre-interview, um, uh, we talked about the fact that you, you know, you followed Dave Ramsey for getting out of debt, which by the way, um, the, um, the name of, he has a program, Financial Peace University. And what's the name of his book um, that, that, the total money makeover. 
the total money makeover. So um, quick story about the total money makeover. Uh, I'm a firm believer that people just are not educated when it comes to managing their finances. Parents are afraid to talk to their kids about it. It's not in the curriculum in school. Um, so what I started doing with my wife is when we go to a wedding and we give a wedding present and we're writing a check and we're handing money to a new bride and groom, we give it to them with the total money makeover. So um, I buy them, you know, 10 at a time and they sit on the shelf here. And when we, you know, when we're doing that, we gift the, the, the book with the check and I inscribe it, you know, I write a note inside and I, I tell them a little bit of my own personal story and why I'm giving this book. And it's it primarily to get husband and wife communicating about money in a meaningful way about what do I want and how do we want to live our lives? Because if, if, if you ask anybody who's 10 years into their, you know, into their marriage and money is a factor, they wish that they had started at the beginning differently. And, you know, so, so, that, so I use, I use Dave's book to, to do that. Um, you had mentioned that, that Mike Michalowicz is somebody else that you, that you follow. And I talk about Mike Michalowicz profit first here. I am a profit first professional. I, I I'm, I'm trained in helping businesses to implement profit first in their business. How did, how did Mike Michalowicz uh, make you think differently about the way that you handled finances in your business? And how did your own personal experience with paying off debt affect the way that you handle cash in your business? So the way it, it allowed me to handle cash in my business. I'd always done no debt in the business. I had personal debt. I never had. I never had uh, firm debt though, because I would just I would just put the money back in back in the firm and do it that way. Um, I knew I knew I had an aversion to debt, but I had it in my personal life, so I didn't want to have it in my business life. Uh, Michalowicz is a really interesting figure. I I look at him as essentially the Dave Ramsey of business. So they're very kind of uh, symbiotic systems, right? So when we had decided to get out of debt personally, I remember thinking to myself, man, I wish there was a system that translated, uh, th this system would translate very easily to a business structure, but I could never, I just never quite figure out how to, how to do that. And then I ran across Profit First and I thought, oh my goodness, this is the system. It's so easy to do. And, uh, you know, once you implement it, for the first three months, it really kind of stinks, you know, trying to figure it out. After about three months, you know, now nowadays I think about firm finances approximately two, maybe three hours uh, a month. But to get through all my profit first stuff, it takes literally half an hour to 45 minutes to do it. But it was that like very simple system that laid everything out. This is how you do it. This is how you can see your numbers. Uh, you don't have to stress about it. You can pay everything uh, on this day and just get it done. And then you just put it on a calendar and you do it. And then you never really have to, to worry about it very much. Then that frees you to go do marketing or, you know, become a better salesperson or closer, you know, whatever, whatever you need to do to increase your revenues, decrease your expenditures in your business. It really frees that up for you. So I, I really liked that it was essentially Dave Ramsey for the business. And I, I loved how Michalowicz looked at things and the really super simple system he set up. Yeah. And when I, when, when I have to describe profit first to somebody, I tell them in its most simplistic form, it is grandma's envelope system of budgeting for your business and the envelopes of your bank accounts. Yep. Like that's the, <laughs> that's the, the most basic way that I can, that I can break it down. And 
I got that term of grandma's envelope system from Dave Ramsey. So, um, you know, it, it, it's true. There is, a, there is that, that, that overlap um, and, and very, you know, very similar uh, ways of, of thinking about it and also similar journeys, you know, like uh, I, I, I built, I built something to, you know, that was, that was completely leveraged and, and, and relying on something else. And it can't, well, came crashing down. And then I started over in a more, a more careful, structured, methodical way. And now, you know, now I figured it out. Um, and that's really both of their stories, uh, when you, you know, when you look at that, where they came from. So, um, Marco, this has been, this has been absolutely amazing. And, you know, I asked you to give yourself one piece of advice, you know, when you're starting a firm, now I'm going to ask you to, to think about our, our listeners, not necessarily somebody who's starting a firm. Somebody's running a law firm. They've been doing it for, for a number of years. They're achieving some level of success, but when I got started helping law firms, uh, my first five clients that I took on on the accounting side, they brought me on to help them implement Profit First. On the surface, they looked really successful. Beautiful office, decent sized staff, clients coming in. But on the back end, they were uh, transferring personal funds every two weeks to cover payroll into the company. And I saw the same thing firm after firm after firm. And that's when, uh, that's when I said, Hey, there's something here. There's a broken system that I'm going to address and I'm going to, and that's when I started serving lawyers and, and uh, profit with law brand was born. Um, so thinking about attorneys who are not, they don't have this put together. So they're on this journey, they're achieving a, a level of success, but they don't have the, the personal success. What is, um, the best advice that you can give them on how to start addressing it today and get back on track to, to, because they don't have to, they don't have to bring in more business. They don't have like, there's, they, they can, they can flip the script by changing their behavior. So what is that change that they need to look at? I'm going to go back to, uh, I harp on this a lot. I'm going to go back to what I, what I said first, which is to, to get paid. So what I've seen, I know, at this point, thousands of attorneys, right? I, I really, I enjoy attorneys. I love my colleagues. They've been very good to me, uh, but we're terrible business people for the most part. So what I see as I look at, when I talk with my friends and I delve into their numbers a bit, is that they really don't need more clients. Like we can all use more clients, right? I try to get more clients every day, but they don't really need more clients they need to get paid 100% for the work they're already doing. And that allows them to solve a ton of problems. So I think the, the easiest way to increase revenues, increase your gross receipts and solve your problems is to look at the work you're already doing and to be as efficient as possible when you, when you work, right? So the number of hours that you're in the office per day, and then what you actually bill, because the average attorney works about eight hours a day, and they bill about 2.5 hours a day. So this comes from Clio data. Um, it, it, and that's not, you know, that's not good at all, right? That is not good at all. So awesome. make yourself more, more efficient at billing when you're in the office. But really, what you want to do is you already have the ability to make all the money you need, just collect on the number of hours that you already that you've already worked make that your absolute number one priority like go go in there rearrange your law firm so collection 
is your number one thing. And you have to put somebody in charge of collection who isn't an attorney because attorneys are terrible at collections, right? So make it a paralegal, make it, you know, whoever it is. So make somebody in charge of that and get paid hundred percent. If your clients are not paying you, then you cut them off right then and there. You just stop doing work. You do that one thing, your revenues will go up dramatically and you will have money to solve your problems. Because again, if you can write a check and solve to solve a problem, you don't have a problem. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. Um, I, I recently came across a software company. Um, they actually were, they were exhibiting at ClioCon um, and I just had a conversation with them and I'm going to have them on the podcast. Um, but there's a piece of software called WiseTime, which integrates with Clio um, that what the software does and this is, they're getting a free plug here. What the software does is um, it basically uh, tracks everything you do on the computer. And it does it based on what is the primary window that's open on the computer is. Um, and therefore, every time that you go into email and you're responding to clients' email, it's tracking that. Every time that you, you know, so there's a lot of things that, that we do a poor job of tracking because the only way for us to do it is start and stop timer, you know, in, in Clio or whatever software you're using, or trying to recreate your day and recall how much time did I spend on something. Um, and what this does is it, it, it recoups a lot of that lost time that you just didn't know what you spent it on, because now you're tracking it. And I, I told them, I said, this really reminds me of what I do to track my mileage for IRS. If you want to take auto expenses, you've got to have a mileage log. And I have an app called MileIQ on my phone that literally every time I start moving, it's, it records a trip and it's got a start and a stop. And all I have to do is once a day, once a week, I go into my trips and I swipe to the right is, you know, is personal to the left is business and it's earmarked as what the trip is. It's, uh, it, you know, it's the same idea, but for your time. And, um, it, you know, I have no idea what they, what they charge for that, but uh, I'm sure that, you know, it would recoup its, its costs, you know, almost immediately. And it, it creating a system to the financial piece is really the, the, the key to solving that problem. Because the reason that we get in our heads is because we're not, we, every time we're making a decision about what are we going to bill? How are we going to go, communicate with this client that we need to collect from them? But if you have a system with everything already pre-written, and everything already ready to go, then it's a matter of just, okay, what, every two weeks I do a billing cycle, once a month I do a billing cycle, whatever it is, generate my, my invoices. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many firms I've been in where generating invoices is like a three-day project for, for everyone involved because everyone has to go and review the time and make sure they're okay, that they're not, that they, that they didn't put, they don't have time in there that they don't wanna build a client. And there's no reason for that whole process. Like you said, you got to charge your worth. You're doing, obviously, you know what you're doing. You, 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 you're good at what you do. So if you spent time on it, it's time that needed to be spent. Don't make this calculation of, oh, I had to go figure something out. Well, you had to figure it out for them. They're, they're paying for it. Um, and if not, then when you initially record the time, record it properly as non-billable time. Don't, you know, don't have to go through that exercise at the end. By creating a system and, and eliminating this massive project around it and all these major decisions, it's going to free you up and it's going to change, flip the script for the cash flow in your business. So love that. Marco, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, 
if anybody wants to get in touch with you or, or follow up with you after, uh, after this podcast, ask you questions, um, you want to give a, a way for them to communicate with you? Yeah, you can just email me. Uh, so I don't have a, I don't have a phone in my office. I don't communicate that way. I haven't had one for, I think it's been about five years since I've had a phone, which is the greatest thing in the world. So I, I just email that. me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so good. So we, we got a new phone system at one point, my paralegal, my office manager came to me and said, which extension do you want? I said, no, no, I don't want a phone anymore, which, you know, caused some consternation in the office, but it's worked out really well. So uh, email me. It's totally fine. It's Marco, M-A-R-C-O at utdivorceattorney.com. Happy to talk with anybody about this. You need help at all, like happy to sit down. I don't do pro bono cases because why do I want to do another divorce? I do hundreds of them a year. This is how I give back to my colleagues who have been extraordinarily good to me over the years. So th this is what I do. Feel free to contact me. Awesome. Marco, I, I wish you guys the best on, on the rest of your journey. This has been, it's been an amazing conversation, but it's also a real eye opener to people as far as what's possible. Um, and I hope that uh, we walk away from this inspired, uh, ready to take action and, and to change some of the ways that we do things. And uh, maybe some people have some new goals too. So um, I really appreciate you coming on and spending the time with us. Thank you very much. It's been fantastic. You're a great interviewer. Awesome. Well, folks, if uh, you really enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you would go into your podcast player and give us a rating and or review. Let me ask you a question. When uh, you complete a matter and you did a good job for your client, do you ask them to leave you a review? You should be. And if you did and they didn't leave a review, how would you feel? Well, how do you think I feel if you don't leave me a rating and review? Uh, the purpose of the rating and review is so that when other people check the show out, they know, is this worth me listening to or not? So we need more ratings and reviews. It's not to make me feel good. It's not to, as a matter of fact, you can leave a poor review. That's fine too, if that's how you feel. Um, but we just want you to go out there and share with the world what you feel about this show so that other people will check it out. Uh, that's it, folks. We'll see you on Tuesday on the next solo episode. Marco, thank you so much. And guys, go make it profitable, change the script, um, increase your, your cash flow, pay off your debts. Uh, you can do this. This is not something that is a Mount Everest situation. It feels like it. Um, but I'm sure that Marco can say, you know, when, when, my, when I was at the peak of the mountain and I looked down, the journey actually was pretty clear and it didn't need to take all the detours that it had to take. And I think that those detours happen when we get in our own head, we get in the way and just choose the goal and then execute on it, create the systems around it. I love that quote that he shared earlier. Um, although I don't, I don't want you to only have systems with no goal. You kind of need both. Uh, but I think that, that you can do this. And I'd love to hear some great stories like Marco's um, that came from this episode. So I'll be waiting to hear from you guys. Take care. Have you been enjoying the show? We sure hope so. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app. Next week, we will be back with more valuable resources and ideas on how to break the mold and take your law firm to the next level.